Siemens podcast from Bottom Line Technologies. So this year on the barometer, we've actually doubled the survey site. We've gone to 800 British businesses. We've gone out to the financial decision makers with the help of Ipsos Mori and pulled in what we think is the voice of business uh, for uh, the UK. It's a, it's a space that uh, we think needs a little bit more data. We've been running for a number of years to try and raise the interests of the community of business and corporates. And this year, given the timing of it, it's actually the very final snapshot of business and their thinking just before COVID uh, struck the UK and, and worldwide. So quite an interesting, rich data set just pre-COVID to, to set a benchmark for the future. And today's themes, we've broadly prepared in three areas, change, efficiency, and also risk and compliance. We have um, Gavin McLean from Lloyd's. That's Gavin, let's see if the tech is working here. Hi, Ed. Hi, Gavin. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to hear you. You too. Uh, Thank you. We have Naresh Agarwal from the Association of Corporate Treasurers. Morning, Naresh. Morning. And we have uh, Dan Bennis from the Federation of Small Business. Dan. Hi, morning, Ed. Super. Well, we've got this far. What, what could possibly go wrong in the world of digital working? Um, we have our panellists online uh, ready to explore the barometer. Um, and so, first question, if I may, folks, um, and I'll go in the same order, Gavin, Naresh, and, and then Dan. Um, Patrick, you could just give a, a, a short intro of your area of interest and just pick out one statistic out of this year's barometer that really stuck out for you. Gavin. Okay, thanks, Ed. Well, I'll tell you the statistic that stood out for me and then I'll, I'll explain a little bit about my role and why that was important. I think the one that stuck out for me was um, 21% of small businesses feeling vulnerable uh, to changes in the trading environment. You know, given the key role that small business plays in our economy, that was a striking figure to me anyway. But what's also so significant is that, as you said, this was the sentiment before um, COVID happened to us. And when respondents, you know, according to the survey, were probably worrying about those uh, traditional worries of, you know, fraud and risk and regulation and all that stuff. And certainly before any of us knew what the heck furlough meant or had ever heard about social distancing. So having felt vulnerable, you know, before, they must feel like all of their nightmares have, have kind of come in one night. Um, and, and I also wonder if the larger businesses that, that didn't feel quite so vulnerable pre-crisis um, are maybe... Uh, feeling that they actually were a little bit more vulnerable to changes in the trading environment than than perhaps they realised. Um, why why is that? I mean, I, I've spent twenty years building and running payment products to to help businesses pay and get paid. Actually, much of that time has been trying to minimise or insulate businesses from the impact of of, of all of those changes. Um, but actually, we now all face, you know, unavoidable changes to that trading environment on, on a scale, certainly that I've not seen in my career. Um, and I guess many of us haven't seen. 
in our lifetime. So, um, yeah, on a personal level, that, that as a dad, that gives me a few worries for the for, for the coming period. Um, but also professionally, you know, um, I'm reasonably optimistic that um, about the role that the payments industry can play in supporting those businesses to to adapt to the changes and, and ultimately come through and recover from the from the crisis that we're now facing into. Super. Thanks, Gavin. Um, Naresh, one statistic and, and a brief intro, please. Okay, well, I'm going to do reverse to uh, Gavin. So a bit of introduction. My name is Naresh Agrawal. I'm one of three members of the policy and technical team at the Association of Corporate Treasurers. The ACT is the only professional treasury body with a Royal Charter. We've got over 6,000 students and members across 94 different countries. Um, and I've been a treasurer for about 30 years, 20 years in industry, and almost nine years at PwC where I led uh, cash management payments for the firm. At the ACT, I sit on some Bank of England and Pay UK panel, so payments is an area that I'm really uh, following with a lot of interest. Um, the stat for me is 89% of late payments, and um, although it's down from 92% last year, I think it's still a really blunt instrument for many people trying to manage working capital. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how things like the prompt payment code will affect this going forwards. I know from my conversation with treasurers, we see during this COVID crisis doing the right thing, helping make sure their supply chains remain resilient is really important. So it'd be interesting to see next year uh, whether the numbers go up or go down. Mm, indeed. Fantastic. Thank you, Naresh. And Dan? Hi, I'm Dan Bellis from the Federation of Small Businesses. And the FSB represents over 150,000 small businesses right across the UK, everything from the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, right the way through to the, the fintechs on, on, the other side of the, um, on the other side of the scale. Um, the big stat that really stuck out for me was that 88% of small businesses recover less than 50% of their losses due to fraud. Uh, and this really speaks to the idea that actually when fraud hits your business, when, when you have a loss of this scale, um, too many businesses consider this part and parcel of, of their day job. Um, and quite frankly, it, it shouldn't be like that. We, we wouldn't accept account of fraud in our personal lives. We would try and rectify these situations. Um, but there's too many small businesses out there for me that don't go forward and, and, and try to, to claim these losses due to fraud and don't have protections in place to try and stop fraud occurring in the first place. Fantastic. And we'll circle back on, on the frauds as a third of our themes, change, efficiency and fraud. Um, so quite a quite a, a wide splash already, guys, from uh, vulnerability around trading uh, through to late payments and then into the, the fraud considerations. Um, so onto the change theme, let, let me come back to yourself, Gavin. And uh, I'm interested to see in the barometer that one of the statistics, uh, and by the way, we've, we've, put, we've splashed up some statistics um, for our audience today that we can circle around. Some have already come up, some some may not. Um, but one of the ones that are on here, actually, the 59% showed us that actually 59% of business were ready for open banking. And that was down from last year, down eight percentage points from last year's trend. What do you think is going on here, Gavin? I, I think 2018-2019 was an intense period of preparation for open banking. 
you know, it was very public, long awaited. You couldn't go to a payment panel like this or a round table without open banking um, being discussed. And at that time, there was a very strong focus on, you know, getting ready for the regulatory change and meeting the requirements of, of the reg change, as is often the case in the change cycle around regulation. What's followed has been, you know, the modest or perhaps slow emergence of new services built upon open banking. And actually, we're still in that period where many new services will be tried um, and, and only some will succeed. So businesses may feel that open banking doesn't have that same intense focus as it did 12 to 18 months ago. Um, having said that, you know, I think there's cause for, for some optimism, and I don't think it's the end of the story for open banking at all, actually. So to give a banking perspective on it, Ed, I mean, we now routinely see tens of millions of calls upon our uh, systems every month uh, for account information service, which tells me that customers are gaining in awareness and confidence and ultimately use of those third-party services. Um, there's now over 200 third-party providers on the, the open banking directory. Over 100 of those are, are registered to provide payment services. And again, from our own experience at Lloyd's, we saw in February and March the largest number of any month where new third-party providers, and some of them very notable names, actually made their first payments. So that tells me that competition amongst those providers for new services is, is really starting to heat up. So I, I think it's been high on the priority list at times. I think it's dropped down the priority list as other things have you know, come to greater prominence. Um, but now new services are emerging, um, and I think the best is very much to, to come from open banking. And, and do you think, Gavin, there's almost um, a fatigue in the corporates and businesses? If, if they were to pick up the payment press, they hear about confirmation of pay, request to pay, open banking, AML5, PISPs and ASPs and all, all kinds of things. Do, do you think there's actually a fatigue in the user base of the payment industry? I'm not sure if I would use fatigue. There's certainly... a a constantly busy agenda, you know, probably fueled by advances in technology, the kind of anabolic rate of change is certainly, you know, on the increase and as, as fast as it's ever been. But, you know, regulatory driven collaboration has given us some, frankly, brilliant systems here in the UK. You know, faster payments is great for us as consumers and businesses. Open banking, you know, you were reeling off the list there, Ed. More recently, confirmation of PE um, is, is a real innovation from, from the UK payments market. So I think we've always got to look on, on the regulations as, as an opportunity to innovate and improve what we have. And we've got to help businesses, you know, pick out the the advantageous parts and, and the commercial edge that they can obtain by, by adopting those new services. So whether that's a, 
whether that's a market-leading proposition facilitated by instant payments, whether that's a reduction in fraud um, brought about by something like confirmation of payee, we, we, we've really got to work as a, as a community um, to make sure our participants extract the benefits out of those you know, large pieces of work that we undertake in their name. So, so Dan, perhaps I could bring you in at, at the other end of the pipe then. Is it, is it feeling like a, a wonderful rush of opportunity from all this regulation? Um, I think eventually we might get to that stage. I think now for small businesses looking at everything that's in the pipeline, um, it, it becomes quite overwhelming for small businesses to begin to understand all these different products, all these different sets of regulation, and, and what it's going to mean for them in, in the long term. What we often forget is that small businesses have very few staff, um, and those staff often do multiple jobs. So they don't have teams of people to go through the different bits of regulation, the different products that are coming down the line. It, it, it will very much be as and when that small business owner has time to go over these issues. So I, I, I think Gavin really hit the nail on the head, really, when he mentioned that actually for small businesses, this is going to be about picking out the advantageous parts of, of effectively the agenda that's coming up. Super. Naresh, did you want to add anything on uh, the fatigue idea and you know who should be who's responsible to address this overwhelming element? Yeah, I mean I think I think everyone's right around fatigue. I think part of the challenge for certainly the people I speak to in the trophy community, I think for large companies they're pretty well embedded with banking solutions. And I think the the opportunities that come from open banking are really trying to prise them away from things they have built and spent a lot of time embedding across their sort of core infrastructure. So I think there's a, a real challenge. And I think more generally there is, I think it's still really hard to find a compelling business case for businesses to adopt some of these things. We've got a huge change, change stack, you know, trophy folk I speak to are working long days just keeping the wheels turning. We're talking about adding something new into the mix. And I think one of the challenges that I find is still around education. It's, you know, what Gavin and Dan were saying, is that trying to explain what is the benefit? What is, why should you invest time and energy looking at some of these new changes when you've got other things that are, you know, you know, firefighting things you have to face here and now? Yeah, people often forget the day job, you know, with all this uh, opportunity coming down the pipe. Um, excellent. Well, if I could just wrap up one comment there, um, picking up, on the access to aggregated data and payments. I think another experience that we've certainly seen at bottom line is it gets a lot more interesting when the payments come online. A lot of people are sweeping together aggregated data, real-time views on cash positions, and now we're seeing some uh, cases emerge where payments are actually introduced, and that, that becomes more real. There's a, there's a relationship that's initiated with, um, with repercussions that needs to be followed through. So. An interesting area of change and an exciting industry to be in right now. But um, let me move on to efficiency, our second theme. Um, and Naresh, you mentioned in the introduction this figure of uh, 89% of late payments, actually down a little bit from last year. We, we had 92% recorded in the fields in 2019 on late payments. That's, um, that's an enormous figure in, in my mind. What, what can companies be doing to address this well i think i think part of the challenge around the numbers is, is actually it's a much more complicated story so i know when um 
there was sort of some naming and shaming I, in relation to the bond payment code. Um, a number of treasurers were quite, um, <clears throat> I guess the word is, were quite unhappy about the process because if they've negotiated 90 or 120 day payment terms with suppliers, they'd be shown as being delinquent on the prompt payment code, which is trying to encourage 60 or 30 days. So I think it's very difficult to be quite so binary to say 89% says that's a terrible number and therefore industry is really doing badly. But I also think it's a reflection of poor operating processes. So we still hear many instances of organizations where they are paying on 30 or 60 day payment terms, but actually somebody somewhere in the process sits on an invoice for 30 days, 40 days before they actually realize it needs paying. And I think that's the real challenge. A lot of it, I think, comes down to transparency. So I think whilst the number is really a bad thing, it's more about how we communicate this information to our suppliers. It was, you know, we are going to pay you late, but at least we're going to pay you. And I wonder if part of what we're experiencing is a lot of uncertainty. Last year we had Brexit uh, sort of featuring, and I wonder if part of the holding on to the cash is a very working capital blunt instrument, which says, I don't know if I'm going to get paid because I don't know, you know, with Brexit, with COVID-19, all these things are affecting my ability to pay my staff and my, you know, and run my business. So I want to hold on to my cash as long as I can. So I think there is, it's a really good metric around uncertainty and lack of trans, lack of trust across our supply chain. And without doubt, you know, when we talk to people, it takes a lot of their time, especially the smaller segment of our community, um, it, you know, affects them with their mental health, it affects their business, their ability to invest in the future, if they're not sure if they're going to get paid on time. So, so I think there's a lot more we can do. I think we need to, again, shine a light around the processes internally, but also shine a light around creating more transparent relationships with our supply chain. Um, hopefully COVID-19 will be a, an accelerator for this. Thank you. And, and Dan, at the smaller end of the business, uh, I mean, these were statistics pre-COVID. We've all watched the news over the last three months about small organisations, cash, cash, cash. Uh, what's your view on the late payments trend for the rest of the year? Well, I, I think late payments for small business, quite frankly, sinks the ship. It's devastating for them. Um, with uh, the recent uh, pandemic, our advice lines have seen unprecedented demand. And one of the key themes that we've seen is that people's invoices are being frozen or payment has been postponed indefinitely. Um, I was speaking to a small business just the other week who sent their invoice in very early in January. That invoice is now overdue. And when they've gone to chase it, they've been told that they will not be getting paid until the current pandemic uh, has subsided and that they were delusional for thinking that they were being paid in the first place. Now, this isn't happening wow. to one or two small businesses. This is happening across the piece. And it is devastating for small businesses when they think that they have a working relationship with their um, larger business provider, um, that they've done the work, that they've done their day job, as it were, and yet they're still waiting 200, 300 days in, in some circumstances, or if they get paid at all with the current pandemic. So this for small business is a devastating issue. And... We are pleased with the work that the Small Business Commissioner 
and um, other organisations celebrated government are doing on this issue, but there's still a long way to go. The Small Business Commission is still limited in their powers to be able to address this. Small businesses still feel as if this is something that is largely outside of their control because they don't want to go through the act of taking larger businesses to court, um, enforcing uh, interest provisions on, on late payment because they lose that relationship. And there's always a threat that actually future work goes out the window. So late payment for small businesses is critical. And especially at the time right at the moment, it's more important than ever to make sure that small businesses in supply chain, small businesses working in all sorts of different structures are actually paid on time. And, and I, uh, I heard uh, recently about this idea of a pay it forward scheme, which uh, on, a, on a positive note, uh, is that something to watch? Yeah, so uh, we've seen this taken forward, um, initiatives taken forward by Taylor Wimpy, the, uh, the house builder. Um, and they were really looking to ensure that they had a supply chain to come back to when we start, well, when they start building again. So this is about ensuring small businesses actually, if it weren't for this pandemic, you wouldn't be doing X, Y, and Z for us right now. And we want to pay you a bit of that money as an advance, as it like, so that they, that can then go down to your um, subcontractors, because obviously house building is quite a complicated supply chain relationship, um, to ensure that A, that there's food on the table for these businesses while they're not initially working due to the social distancing measures or because the site's closed. Um, but also to ensure that when we do get up and running again, that that supply chain is still there, that the businesses have survived the immediate pandemic, and that actually a large company, the Taylor Wimpy at the top of this chain, has actually got that supply chain underneath them to, so that they can all move forward together. And that really gives small businesses a sense of certainty that actually they're not going to be hung out to dry of this, that the large businesses aren't holding on to, to cash to protect themselves, but actually they're aware that if the large businesses holds on to cash and doesn't pass it down the supply chain as they're supposed to, then actually that large business might not have a supply chain and might not be able to do their job when we get back to normal times. Interesting. They're almost using payments as a competitive edge, perhaps in the, in the relationship there. Um, but Gavin, can I bring you in on as, as we move into real-time payments, which featured uh, heavily in the report as well? Um, last year, we had some quite optimistic data come through from the business uh, sample saying that, yes, many of us will be using faster payments. The majority of us plans to adopt. This year, it's a little bit lower. I think it was 50%, a flat 50% to 53% last year. What's your view on the adoption of real-time payments for businesses now? Yeah, I, I mean, I must admit, Ed, I was slightly surprised at a slight regression in, in the sentiment towards um, instant payments between last year's survey um, and this year's. Um, although the the number of businesses citing uh, an expectation to adopt instant payments is down, actually we still see a very healthy growth traje trajectory amongst instant payments, particularly here in the UK. So the, the number of organisations adopting um, might not be rapidly on the rise, but those who are adopting, and, and consumers, frankly, um, are driving up the, the volumes um, at a very healthy level indeed. And, I, I mean, I go back to what, what, what I said before about, you know, extracting the, the edge and the competitive advantages out of the changes that are going on 
in the in, in the UK payments landscape. Um, there are a number of organisations who view payments uh, and view instant payments as a way to to drive a competitive advantage. So whether that's being a recruitment agency that can pay contract staff instantly after they've completed a, an assignment or a shift, whether it's a, a, an online investment um, platform that allows you to withdraw uh, your savings on an instant basis, you know, those can be differentiating factors that as consumers um, we would we would view as being differentiators um, between the available providers in the market. So I, I think instant payments remains an important topic. You know, 50%, 53% is still a significant proportion of the, of the businesses in the survey. Um, and I, I think the, the ones, the businesses who are adopting it um, will find that when they've done so, the, the competitive opportunities that, that it enables, um, the list just grows and grows. That's interesting. I think when you put together this new access to data through open banking regs and real-time networks, that's a world of possibility in terms of data and real-time uh, access to information. Um, where are we uh, in the UK at the moment on levels for faster payments in terms of transaction limits, Gavin? So um, across the scheme, the upper maximum is... £250,000. Um, that's a number that is hotly debated uh, at industry uh, on, a, on a pretty regular basis. Um, I, I don't want to give any secrets away, but um, if I was a betting man, and I must say I'm not, uh, but if I was, um, I would be planning on an increase to that limit, um, probably to single-digit millions um, in the early part of next year. Um, I think the, the COVID, you know, crisis should make us all thoughtful about what that change agenda is and make sure that we're prioritising the things that can, um, that can best support businesses and the, the wider economy to, to recover from the, from the shock. That we're that we're now in the middle of, um, but I, but I would imagine um, that we will we will move that up from a number in the hundreds of thousands to a number in the millions um, next year. The change agenda permitting, and to your earlier point, Ed, um, avoiding any fatigue or or initiative overload. Um, that's always a risk. Well, maybe that's a good segue then to our third. Uh, and final theme, risk and compliance. Uh, and Dan, perhaps I can come to you and then Naresh. So uh, faster payments, a million plus pounds per transaction. Does faster payments mean faster fraud? All sorts of questions in the background. Um, but, but let me come to a statistic you pulled out at the top of the call, which was uh, 80, is it 88% unable to recover uh, more than 50%. What well, if we said it in reverse, it would be only 12% can recover the majority of, of fraudulent uh, losses. So how big a problem is this leakage in the small business arena? I, I think for small businesses, uh, again, too many of them see losses due to fraud as just part and part of the day job. 
uh, it, it's it's often down to human error, um, human instinct, and it, it, it's very difficult for small businesses to manage internally. As I said at the top of the call, small businesses don't have, by and large, dedicated finance team to take care of payment for them. So a innocent-looking email that comes in for an invoice that vaguely looks familiar is all too easy, I'm afraid, for small businesses to end up paying when they are surrounded by the um, plethora of other jobs that require their immediate attention. So small businesses are more vulnerable to these types of attacks, to these types of uh, fraudulent uh, claims against them, um, simply because they don't have the resources to be able to cope with this. Now, mechanisms like push to pay, for example, do help increase the speed um, within which payments can be sent, um, payroll can be sped up and, and um, authorised with different measures to make sure that there is more security in there. Um, but it's important that when we're looking to speed up these payments, uh, especially the small businesses are making, that there are adequate protections in there to ensure that actually they're paying the right person for the right invoice. So we need to make this not necessarily quicker for small businesses, but we need to make it easier for them to understand. Now, this might mean taking some of the security measures and implementing them in the background as opposed to asking the small business for X, Y, and Z before a payment is, is made. There's perhaps more we can do on the, on the background side of things um, as opposed to placing the additional burden on the small businesses. So if we can begin to get these payment structures correct and get them in place and importantly get small businesses actually using them, um, hopefully we can begin to mitigate the amount that's lost to fraud each year. You've then got the other side of the scale, which is an instance of fraud has happened, money has been lost, and what can that small business do to recoup that? Um, small businesses have uh, better relationships with their, their banking providers than others. Um, so normally when they have fallen foul to fraud or, or, or their payroll provider, um, that is normally their first port of call when they seek to address this. As I said, they're, they're not necessarily experts in, in fraud recovery, but they're looking for help from somebody who is. Um, and that really is where good relationships between um, the small businesses and their financial service provider, whether that's, that, that's their bank or payroll operator, that's where that really comes in incredibly helpful for small businesses who are looking to recover that loss. That's great. Thanks, Dan. Um, and, and we know from industry statistics, actually, the fastest growing fraud on the planet right now is the authorised push payments, the APP, which um, has now gone through the 300 million to, to, to 456 million pounds last year and probably growing. We'll, we'll see how some of the initiatives in the industry can hold that back. Um, Naresh, I'd be interested in your views for the larger corporates on fraud. Is it is it similar? It's it's just a cost of doing business, or is it something that has continual investment that's reviewed? Um, I think it's a question, but I think it's a matter of both. So I think it's um, a big for, for larger businesses. It still remains a key challenge for them. You know, it's often not the big amounts that are that are taken out. It's you know often small amounts taken out of a regular period. Um, I think there are two things. Uh, one is I think as organisations are creating more payment factories, it's easier to uh, train and educate their teams to make sure they are putting in place some of what Daniel's talked about, about you know, learning, educating, making sure people are aware of the sort of key controls they need to think about 
to prevent uh, authorised, you know, well, to, to, to mitigate fraudulent payments being made. I think no one wants to be responsible for payments. One of the things that I'm very mindful of is, you know, responsibility for payments often encompass spread across a lot of different people. Treasury teams can often make their own payments, have payment centres then making their own payments. And if there's a fraud committed, one of the challenges is before that, is it team for looking at the technology that's sat behind it, or who owns the payment processes? So I'm a big fan of, of trying to encourage organisations to pull together not just payment frauds like credit card fraud as well into a single hub that creates greater ability for fraud across an organisation because it's not just in one place okay. and necessarily happens, it can across multiple places in an organisation. Okay, good. And, and I think UK PLC is waking up because our, our bandwidth uh, has just struggled a little bit on the last two contributions, but we did follow, we did manage to pick up the themes. Um, perhaps, Gavin, if I can come to the, the bank seat looking at um, fraud, and also we have uh, an area of sanctions in the barometer research. This is quite fascinating compared to last year. We, we're seeing a trend where last uh, year, 70%, 70% of businesses were pointing towards banks as their responsibility for sanction checking. That's actually dropped now to only 58% of organisations and enterprises think they can uh, leave the bank only uh, on the sanction checking. Well, what's your view on the overall bank support for both fraud and sanctions? Yeah, so uh, fraud first, just to summarise the points, uh, the other contributions made, constant battle, uh, unfortunately, as we see with uh, most um, significant events that take place in the world, the you know the bad guys will use COVID and the the uncertainty and, and the challenges that it throws up to you know to come up with ever more um, sinister and elaborate uh, MOs to to try and trick us out of our money. Um, I, I think from the banking perspective, particularly on the authorised push payment or the invoice diversion uh, type modes, I think confirmation of payee um, is, a, is a good tool in the kit bag to, to try and help banks and businesses and other payment service providers to, to combat that type of thing. Um, it won't be a silver bullet, but you know, bringing some of that... Um, bringing some of those fraud-fighting measures that, that we have embedded in the payment systems up to the front where businesses are actually carrying out their payments and giving more of the, the insight and the control to, to businesses, I think, can only be, only be a good thing. On sanctions, I mean, look, if more businesses or, or if businesses think... Um, less of the, the, the sanction checking lies with the bank. I can assure you we don't feel any less burdened to, 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 to undertake our duties when it comes to, to sanctions check-ins. I, I, I think that what we're seeing coming through the survey results, Ed, is that with more payment providers, more technology companies and more fintechs being involved in the the payment processing chain, 
I think just more of those organisations are are becoming aware of their responsibility and, and, and what they need to do around sanctions checking. So it's been well known to, you know, firms like Bottom Line and banks like Lloyd's for a long time. But I think with the more uh, participants, the more third parties that we're seeing emerging in the into the market and providing competition, I think what we're maybe seeing in the results is just a reflection that there are now more people uh, who have a duty and a responsibility to to do those things that were typically done by a bank in the past. Um, so we'll start to uh, wrap up the first part of this with one more question. And perhaps I can encourage any of the media on the line to start thinking about any Q&A and hitting the button at the, at the bottom and we'll try and field those. We fielded a couple as we've gone. Um, but the last question I want to go to is a bit of a crystal ball question as we look forward into the future and taking into account the, the new conditions that have happened post-barometer with COVID. So um, let's go in reverse order this time. So Dan to Narash to Gavin. The question would be, um, what are the key considerations you would highlight in payments for the business world, Dan? Um, I, I think we'd like um, a fundamental change, really, in, in the culture when it comes to late payments. Um, there's a plethora of reasons why late payments uh, occur, and it, it's something that we have to get out of um, to help small businesses survive, really. Um, if, if we're able to do this, it, it will mean that there's more small businesses out there, more jobs, ready UK PLC. But for us, we need to have better transparency over the data. Um, so the duty to report data is it, currently self-certifying. So we would like to see um, these payment statistics actually put within companies' annual reports so that effectively they go through independent audits and we know what the payment performance is like of these top companies. And, and really, we're looking for these big businesses to help lead the way on this, to help fight the charge um, to increase uh, speedier payments for small businesses. Super. Thank you, Dan. Naresh, looking forward, what's, what's your highlights and advice for the business world? I think to follow and understand a lot more what's going on in the payments arena, what changes are occurring, Picking up one of the things Gavin said, it's around how payments really are moving away from being a utility function about, I've just got to get the payment. But there's a richness of that interaction with customers, whether it's B2B or B2C, which can provide a real advantage. So I think that it's, it's a great opportunity for anyone involved in payments from a business perspective to really look more widely at the changes. You know, I, I've seen things around where you know people can start moving away from banks to faster payments that allows things like the gig economy to be gig economy to be supported more effectively get cash moving into smaller businesses and they sort of go much more quickly so i think some really exciting areas where payments are really delivering change i think businesses need to understand a lot more around works for them very good thank you um, and Gavin, your, your forward-looking advisory to the business world, please. Um, so I would have said this anyway, Ed, but I think COVID has upped the ante and, and, and accelerated the need in many ways. Um, businesses right now 
urgently need to review their processes and their methods for accepting and making payments. You know, whether that's cash, card, contactless, their ordering systems, you know, e-commerce, and they need to urgently address how are they going to run those processes and keep cash flowing through the business in a socially distanced world for however long that's going to go on. And I think, you know, we're starting to see through some of the data um, in the bank that, you know, COVID is certainly causing an acceleration of some of the trends that we've, you know, been used to over the last few years, away from cash, on electronic payments, e-commerce, uh, and all of that kind of stuff. And um, I, I think whilst that's the short term, I think there's cause for optimism here in the UK. Um, I think we've got a great track record of cross-industry collaboration to, to deliver things that, that can make a positive difference for businesses. We have progressive regulators and we have that platform to to innovate from. Um, and I don't know how and I don't know why, but I just think that as we recover and we come out of the, the, the COVID crisis, I think we're all going to be grateful for some of the great payment systems that we've got and some of the innovations that we've seen over the last few years. Now, whether that's, you know, whether that's open banking or whether it's some of the fraud detections that we've talked about today, um, I, I think here in the UK, we're as well-placed as any developed economy to use our payments infrastructure and payment systems to, to help us trade our way out of this crisis. And uh, thank you, Kevin. I think we've probably, um, all of us who spent time in payments, have probably been fairly uh, happy, actually, with how the industry's performed under COVID conditions. We, we talk a lot about resilience, robustness, and keeping that critical national infrastructure running. And um, I think, thankfully, we've played our role uh, in keeping that pretty seamless and invisible under the covers as, as the whole economy has adjusted, I would hope. Um, okay, let me just uh, check. We have one question in here. So if we can move formally to sort of Q&A sessions, please keep them coming. Um, here's an interesting one, which, which maybe Naresh, uh, I'll start with you if I may, and, and then please others chip in. Um, can you create competitive advantage via payments? Let me give you um, an example that I, I came across a few years ago. It was um, um, an insurance company. I think it was AXA announced that within um, the claimant putting a phone down on a claims handler, the money could be in the bank account within up within three minutes, um, which I thought personally for me was a meaningless comment. I wouldn't make me change what I did, but it was a great marketing strapline. And I remember meeting the, the treasurer for another insurance and he said he'd had been in a board meeting a week later and he'd been asked, when they were to release their own faster payments. So I think that it definitely can, it does. I think the practical applications of it uh, may not mean very much, but the marketing concept of being able to pay people in the way that we pay Uber, the way we pay for many of our things from a perspective. As a business, we can see just what difference that can make to a user, a customer user experience. So I, I think there are plenty of examples of how it can create 
real competitive advantage. Super. Dan, do you have uh, any views there you share about payments having a competitive advantage? Yes, certainly. I, I, I think it, it's part and parcel of having a good relationship um, between the, the small businesses uh, in our circumstances and the large businesses or, or the, the large contractor. Um, we've seen it with the likes of Taylor Wimpy, where, where payment um, is prompt, where various mechanisms are put in place to help small businesses through the immediate crisis, then businesses do favour doing more work with that uh, company. Uh, construction has always had a, a bit of a black cloud over it when it comes to paying people on time. It's, it's being notorious um, as one of the industries where late payment tends to be right. But what we've seen from Taylor Wimp is actually small businesses are much more open to working with those companies if they have payment structures in place. If I was a, a small business construction company, and that's a long way from my uh, own construction skills, I must admit, um, if I had a choice of whether or not I'm going to work for somebody who's going to pay me in 200 days, or I could work for Taylor Wimpy and, and go through this scheme, based on those payment performances, I know who I'd rather work for, quite frankly. It just gives you certainty. It helps with the, the mental health aspect as well of, of running a business, knowing that actually you are going to be paid for the work you do. Gavin, from the bank view, how do you view payments in terms of advantage, competitive advantage? Yeah, I, look, I'd just echo um, what the guys have said. Um, you know, as consumers, we are increasingly intolerant of anything that takes any time whatsoever, can't be done 24 hours of the day, and that I can't do self-service, typically on a digital device like a tablet, a PC, uh, or, or indeed my, my smartphone. That expectation as a consumer drives my expectations of the businesses that I transact with. So I will not wait for a refund on my gas and electricity account. Why should I wait several days for my credit card company to recognise that I've paid money towards my balance? Why should I wait to get money out of my savings account? You know, and that intolerance and, and impatience as consumers that then becomes a competitive factor. It becomes an order-winning factor when I decide where to place my business. So um, I completely echo what, what the guys have said. I, I know what house builder I'd want to be uh, working for, Daniel, if I had any practical skills whatsoever. Uh, I don't, but if I did, uh, that, would, that would be a, a really significant factor for me and, and and that's precisely how we see it at the bank making payments you know fast transparent seamless and and as as free from error as they can be is what what, what we're striving to do and um, frankly consumers and businesses won't accept anything less and and i think it's, it's probably outside the scope of today but um it's been fascinating to watch a lot of companies that as things got cancelled with COVID, we heard about cash refunds by law, then it turned into a voucher, then the call centres are empty, so you're going to have to wait a few months, and there's been real stress and strain on those form of payments, and I think we'll still need to come through the wash. Um, I Personally, I've set up a little COVID voucher file on my computer where I'm just putting all of these uh, delayed payments to one side. Um, we've had a question in, uh, I think, from accountancy age, is it, Jeremy? Um, Despite best efforts, fraud continues to go up. Is there an underlying cause or is it just a larger volume of transactions? 
Did someone want to take that one? An underlying cause, or is it just larger volumes of transactions? I can speak to it from a small business perspective. Um, to some extent, uh, transactions going up, increasing in volume, is largely a good thing for small businesses. It shows that actually there's, there's work coming in and, and there's turnover being created. Um, with that does come increased risk. You become a bigger target for, for fraudsters. Um, but equally, small businesses, as they grow and as they evolve, they get uh, more advanced and better at using various payment structures. So there is quite a steep learning curve for small businesses getting used to these different payment structures and making uh, these volumes of transactions. Um, what we would like to see is that learning curve um, flattened off a little bit um, so that small businesses are learning to use these, but they're using them, learning to use them quickly and correctly, which means that they're not making these uh, mistakes as they get their, their small team used to using these different bits of software um, and complying with the different regulations by making various payments. Super. And the rest, is, is there a difference if we go from small business to larger corporates in terms of what the businesses are doing to try and rein it in, in terms of fraud losses? Is there a difference there? Um, I, I don't think there really is. I think it is a combination of preventative and detective controls with a whole load of training. I, I think that it is, I think as Gavin said, it's an ongoing fight. Um, I think that, as Daniel said, as you know, businesses typically are growing, um, the volume and the value of fraud will naturally increase. The things that I'm really interested by is how things like artificial intelligence will hopefully start out anomalies in terms of payment, behaviours, benefits. That will be another great tool. Of course, the fraudsters will find their own ways of using AI to counteract this. But I think, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot about is AI application to try and... Yeah, that, that, that has certainly um, a long road of value propositions to come, I think, with AI. Um, I saw, Gavin, I saw public information on Lloyd's success at stopping frauds with confirmation of payee going live. 31% reduction in APP fraud. Um, what, what's your view on what more businesses can be doing to, to try and reduce this figure that seems to come up every year in our, in our data sets? Yeah, I mean, look, I think as the other guys have said, it's a it's an ongoing fight. Um, you know, when you squeeze the sponge um, and reduce, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, and I'm really sorry, but um, you know, when you squeeze the sponge and you cut out a, a leak somewhere, then you know, it, it generally just squishes out uh, somewhere else. So, you know, we're we're pleased with the with the start that confirmation of PE has had. Um, it's landed as well or better than we expected and it's had a positive um, impact on the the app, uh, the, the authorised push payment um, type scams. Um, the, I mean, look, there's a spectrum of sophistication here from, you know, malware and actually trying to hack the technology um, down to more um, human um, social engineering and, and just tricking people into making payments uh, uh, that they shouldn't be. And, and that means that the, 
the, the, the range of defences that a, a business has to employ is really quite wide and quite sophisticated. So just when you think you're getting on top of it, you know, because you've upgraded to the latest firewall and you've locked down a lot of your security protocols, then, you know, somebody gets duped by a... Um, but by an altered invoice or something like that. So it really is a, a, a constant fight. As you know, the question says, as payment volumes and values go up, um, I, I think we'll be constantly fighting to make sure that the, the, the value or the impact of those frauds uh, doesn't increase. Um, but you know, none, none of us can afford to be complacent in this regard. Um, we will have wins along the way, um, but that will just mean that the, the, the threat migrates elsewhere and, and then we'll have, to, we'll have to tackle it in a different way. I think the work that, you know, the ACT and, and actually Daniel uh, and his organisation do around uh, awareness and, and education and, you know, the advice and support lines that they've got is a, is a great help in addition to some of the controls and measures that we can put in place on, on the actual payment systems. And uh, I, I saw recently an organisation, very sophisticated um, fraud, where it was an account take, an email account takeover. So uh, the contractor that was working for the business was um, asking for details to be changed on the bank account. And there was a dialogue that just looked like it was the contractor. And the contractor had no idea that his... Um, Email box had been compromised and uh, emails from the company had been diverted and um, the course was busy redirecting funds. It was really quite, quite amazing. Um, any other comments around the fraud area and um, the internal behaviours that we often hear about being monitoring to try and reduce fraud? That's another interesting area. All right, I can, I can contribute one, one, one insight and that's definitely... As we've seen, a lot of our members move towards the centralised payment factories um, and these sort of centre of excellences. I think it's much easier where organisations are concentrating payments in one place to put in place a number of things, including monitoring internal activity. It's always very difficult when you've got one person doing payments and no one else actually keeping an eye on those payments or if you've got it spread across a, a large organisation. So, so, yeah. Excellent. Um, I think that's most of the question. There's one more question on real-time payment technology. We've had it since 2008 in the UK. Why has it taken so long to get to this point of adoption? Perhaps a quick fast-fire answer there, and then we'll close up. Um, Gavin, do you want to start with adoption on faster payments? Why not quicker? Um, I mean, how quick do you want it? You know, <laughs> faster payments has gone from a standing start in 2008 to be in bigger than the BACS credit scheme um, but by quite some way now, um, you know, and BACS had a 40-year head start. So, you know, I, I think cool. faster payments is on an adoption curve uh, like anything else. Um, I think it'll continue to grow. I, I think the UK faster payments is envied from, you know, other parts of the world. Um, it's a technology that the UK um, has actually exported and, and helped other countries to, to implement. So um, I, I, I think we're doing just fine. And actually, I think, you know, open banking and some of the other market developments, I think, are only going to see a, an, an acceleration in the, the use of instant payments, UK and globally. Excellent. 
super. Any last comment from the from the business community, Naresh or Dan, on faster payments? I, I think all I'd uh, add on on this point is that it does take time for small businesses to get used to new technologies. But ultimately, whether it's forward or whether it's late payment, is that I think we have to begin to understand that actually there are human beings on the end of this, and this has a very real impact. It isn't necessarily taking money from a faceless business. This is a human being at the other end of it. Um, and I think as soon as we begin to realise that, we understand how forward mistakes are made, um, but we also understand the importance of things like paying on time as well. Super. Right. Well, so uh, sorry, Naresh, one final word. No, I was going to say, um, I think one of the challenges around faster payments is a lot of organizations still have very old legacy customer and payment systems and for which FPS cannot yet connect to. And I think legacy systems slowly get replaced. We will start to see an increase in take up. Super. Got it. So, Folks, let's, let's draw this to a close. So um, I'd like to thank our panellists for, for helping us out here today and shining some light on the fifth business payments barometer. I think some very rich data in there that we can share with the industry and, and hopefully move the dialogue forwards on, on payments. Stay safe. Have a good rest of the week. And uh, we'll uh, be reading with interest the further coverage on the payments barometer. Thank you very much. Podcast from Bottom Line Technologies.